This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. We've heard a lot about school grade inflation. Harvard and other Ivy League universities are known for the astounding number of A's that they give out and uh, the minuscule number of C's. It used to be that a rich kid's son could tell his dad that he's doing okay because he's getting a gentlemanly C, but no, no, C's not good enough anymore. And in high schools, the same thing is happening. Grade inflation seems rampant everywhere. Now, a study by the Fordham Institute says that grade inflation is especially likely in the public high schools that affluent students are attending. The author of the study is Seth Gershenson, Associate Professor of Public Policy at American University in Washington, D.C. I'm pleased to welcome Seth uh, to the Education Exchange. Uh, Seth, uh, it's good to have you on uh, our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be back. So, Seth, uh, you look at grade inflation in high schools between 2005 and 2016 in the state of North Carolina. Now, how, how did it happen that you chose North Carolina? Are they the worst state for grade inflation? Oh, no, uh, not at all. The choice of North Carolina was strictly driven by data availability. And, uh, and a few policies that made it sort of ripe for this type of analysis. The data reason is that there is data on the entire population of public school students over that time period. Um, so we don't have to worry about um, selection and the, taking the SAT test, for example, or things like that. And we have really rich data from transcripts, so we know what grades students actually received. And then we can compare those grades to and of course, standardized tests that everyone in the state who took that course took. Uh, the other nice thing about North Carolina is that for a few years towards the end, they essentially required all 11th graders to take the ACT college entrance exam. So that gave us more data, another data point in addition to the end of course test. And also, unlike uh, some previous analyses of grade inflation, Basically, everyone took the ACT, not only students who were taking it for college applications. So those were the reasons we took it. Uh, nothing specific about grade inflation in the state. Yeah, no, those are uh, excellent reasons. So um, how did you obtain all of this information without violating the privacy rights of the students? So the, uh, there's a, a center housed at Duke called the North Carolina Education Research Data Center, and they work in conjunction with the North Carolina Department of Instruction, as well as uh, some researchers at both Duke and UNC Chapel Hill. And they, uh, through this partnership, they de-identified all the student data coming in from the Department of Public Instruction. And then they make that de-identified data available to researchers. Now, tell me a little bit more about these end-of-course uh, exams that are a very important part of your study. Are these end-of-course exams for every course, or what's the policy in, in uh, North Carolina with respect of an exam at the end of the course? So, we in the report, we focus exclusively on Algebra One classes and the accompanying Algebra One end-of-course exams. The reason uh, for that is that 
essentially all kids are taking some version of Algebra 1 in high school in 8th, ninth, or 10th grade. North Carolina at one point required, oh, I want to say about eight end-of-course exams that are all tied to specific high school courses, although uh, in the past five or ten years, some of those uh, requirements have been dropped, and now only about four uh, end-of-course exams are required. But Algebra 1 is the one that has sort of been consistently administered and, and taken by the majority of students. So we focus on that particular end-of-course uh, exam. And then in terms of policies regarding the the, the exam itself, uh, many districts include it as about 15% of the course grade, although there's some uh, cross-district variations in in how much it counts towards the grade and, and for who it counts. Another policy issue with the uh, end-of-course exam is that more or less you have to pass the exam to pass the course, and you have to pass the course to graduate. So it's, it's important uh, in a sense that you, that you pass this exam. However, it, it, it turns out, like many policies, that it's not uh, you don't strictly have to pass it. Um, and I can get into the weeds a little bit here because uh, I think it's relevant. The, if you don't pass on the first try, you take a second try. And then if you don't pass on the second try, you essentially have a little meeting with some teachers and your principal, maybe your parents. Um, and then during that meeting, that group of adults decides whether or not you've matched the material in a way that merits uh, passing the course and moving on. So it, on the one hand, the, you know, you're supposed to pass it, but then sort of what happens if you don't pass it uh, after the second try, there's a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of a fudge factor there, is my understanding. So, and then the other question is, uh, does how what is the passing level? Is it you have to be proficient, or or can you be at some level below proficient and still pass? Uh, I believe it's proficient, and the proficiency uh, is just based on a test score. And of course, over that over the past ten or twenty years, the test score required for proficiency has changed a little bit as the test changed a little bit. So uh, for that reason, for the segments of our analysis that looked at proficiency, we restrict it to a more recent period during which the definition of proficiency stayed the same. I see. Well, all of this is fascinating. Uh, now, are the exams then externally administered or does a teacher come up with the examination herself or himself? No, the, um, it's, it's a statewide standardized test. So every child in the state is taking the same test. So you're saying that grades go up, but then, of course, if grades go up, we think uh, students should be learning more. So how do you show that grades are going up without any evidence that the students are learning more than in the past? The way we do it is we essentially use test scores to predict getting an A. So we use that standardized test score to predict the likelihood that a kid gets an A, and then we look at that relationship between test scores and grades over time. And what happened in the schools with uh, fewer 
students on uh, who are eligible for free or reduced price lunch, which would tend to be in the uh, more affluent communities, in those schools, for a given test score, the likelihood of getting an A got easier. So the idea, you know, to think of uh, in concrete terms, we're essentially comparing kids who attended the same school but in different years uh, who also had the same test scores. So a kid in county high school in 2005 who had a, you know, a, say a, an 80 on the test, and then we'll compare another kid in that same county high school in 2015 who also had an 80 on the test. And then we look at the likelihood that those two kids got an A. And what we find is that the kid in 2015 had a much better chance of getting an A than their counterpart in the same school 10 years earlier who also had an AD on the test. So looking within the same school, you're able to look at what's happening over time within that school. And uh, now you're saying that in the affluent communities you're more likely to get an A now at the same level of demonstrated knowledge uh, than right. earlier. Uh, but how about in the non-affluent schools? Are these are the ones with high percentage of yeah. students on free and reduced lunch? That's right. So, so the relationship in, in those schools uh, was flatter. So you see some great inflation there, but not too much. Right. A, a minuscule amount. A minuscule amount, whereas the other one is is more substantial. How much, how much grade inflation are we talking about here? Well, the, the thing I want to make clear is that when we're talking about grade inflation, the the type of grade inflation we're talking about here in this exercise is really what I would call differential grade inflation. It's and what I mean by that is that the relationship between test scores and grades is changing at differential rates in different types of schools. Um, so let me... So let you're me sort of saying the, here that if, I, if inflation were the same everywhere, you wouldn't worry about it. You'd be sort of like the Federal Reserve that wants to see a little bit of 2% inflation every year, and it's all across the country as a whole, so they don't worry about that. Or they sort of actually like it a little bit. Is that what you're saying? It's not well, inflation per se, it's yeah, differential inflation? It's almost. Yeah. So I think... I think part of the reason that, that grade inflation is such a controversial and divisive topic sometimes is that it's not always clear that we're talking about the same thing. And so uh, something that I, I, I think is sort of a helpful way to think about it is to think about three different types of grade inflation. We could think of static grade inflation, which means that at a given point in time, the test scores and the grades don't line up. And that's the one that I don't worry about at all. And I don't worry about that at all because we, we know that grades are measuring something very different than pure content mastery, uh, uh, something very different from what the tests are measuring. The grades are measuring things like effort and homework performance and attendance and class participation and a whole host of things that are definitely important for school and definitely important for the workforce. So they measure different things, so they should be different. Uh, the second two types of grade inflation are what I, what I think we should worry about more, uh, and that and they are dynamic grade inflation when that relationship between scores and grades uh, changes over time, and differential grade inflation, which is what we're talking about here, which is when 
the relationship between grades and tests are different in different school settings. And the reason that those two types of grade inflation are, are more troubling is that if we don't quite know how they're evolving, or if we don't quite know how they're different in different schools, then we can't adjust for it. And that means that we're, we're using bad information to make decisions, and we know from a, a long history in the economics of information that uh, when we have limited information, we make bad decisions and, and suboptimal decisions. But so, I thought that actually yeah. universities and employers don't pay much attention to grades anymore, that they really have worried about this inflation question with grades for a long time or the fact that one teacher's A is not the same as another teacher's A, and so they, they just don't pay as much attention to them as might have been the case in, in the past. Is that... Well, that, I mean, that, that might be true, but I, in the sense that they pay attention less than they used to, but I, I don't think it's true that they're paying zero attention. I, I think people do pay attention to grades. On the employer and college admission side, even if it's less, I think they still pay attention to it. But more importantly, when I talk about decisions, I'm thinking about the students themselves and their parents and their teachers. Because if you're a parent of a high school student or you're a high school student looking at your grade and you're getting A's and B's, and you think that that means you're, you're doing well there and you can just sort of keep on with the status quo, that can build a sense of complacency, which is harmful if those grades are higher than they should be uh, and your content mastery isn't where it should be. So... You know, in the report, we show that a, a large share of kids who get a B are, are not scoring proficient on the test. Well, those kids are possibly lulled into a sort of a false sense of complacency, uh, and they're not going to seek the extra tutoring or remediation that, that would help them become proficient. So the, this decision-making certainly happens on the employer and college side. But I'm equally, if not more, worried about uh, the decisions that the students themselves are making and the parents and the teachers are making based on these grades. So they have a false sense that they're actually learning something when the truth of the matter is it's not the case. Yeah, that's exactly right. Why do you think this is going on in the affluent school districts more than elsewhere? You might even think it would be going on in the low-income school districts as uh, teachers are trying to encourage uh, disadvantaged kids and telling them they can do it too and, and sort of, uh, you know, trying to increase their aspirations for going to college and so forth. You, you could easily imagine the great inflation being quite the opposite of what you're reporting here. That's exactly right. And, uh, and like like we were chatting about uh, off the air, I was quite surprised by by this pattern. And I agree. I think the 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 story for the opposite result um, is a compelling hypothesis, a compelling theory. Um, so I think, you know, first off, I want to state that this is pure speculation about why this is happening. The study doesn't have the necessary data to really dig in to, to see why this is happening. But one informed speculation would be that in the more affluent schools, uh, both students and parents are more confident and more able to advocate for higher grades. 
And that could be both proactive and reactive. Um, there could be a sense that, you know, this is a, this is a community of uh, educated parents who are, have smart kids and then they expect high grades. And that type of expectation can be set by parents, uh, and, and th- that could be part of the explanation. Yeah, I have teaching assistants who help me with, uh, with my teaching, and I, I find that even just a few students, maybe only two or three, will come around and complain about their, their grade for some exam or something. But, that, but the reaction it has on the teacher or the teaching mm-hmm. assistant in this case is, 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 can be substantial because they, oh, they don't want to have to deal with this kind of, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, complaining that they're, they're getting exposed to. And there's no doubt about it that complaining level is up from where it once was in my experience. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And, and it's related to the old, the old quip that uh, Harvard only has A students or something like that. You know, if there's a sense that a certain school district only has A families or only has A kids, um, that that pressure's there. Um, so teachers um, might be doing this subconsciously. They might be doing it consciously. Um, they might be doing it to ward off um, confrontations down the road. They might be doing it in response to, um, you know, over-involved parents or, or kids, you know, questioning and complaining about their grades. Um, they could also be doing it to make, uh, you know, to, to show that their school's doing well or things like that. So I think there's a handful of, um, plausible reasons why this might be happening. Uh, and I think future research, uh, would do well to sort of dig deeper into, to what's really going on. I will mention one story that we can rule out here, uh, a little bit. And the other story is, well, maybe it's a non-cognitive skills story, and maybe the kids in those schools are just better behaved and are trying harder, and that's what's been changing over time. Uh, and and that's a, I, I think that's a compelling story that we could certainly uh, do more to test and, and evaluate. But the, the one thing that we do have data on is student attendance, uh, which we know might affect grades. Uh, and as a correlate of a lot of those engagement and, and non-cognitive skill measures. And the results uh, in the report that we just discussed uh, totally hold up even after we adjust for student attendance in the, in the better off and less and worse off schools. So I don't think that's, the, that's not the main story. Um, but again, I think future work would be, would be well served to look into this. So do you have any thoughts as to what schools might want to do? do? Should they be weighing more heavily the end-of-course exams and the grades that they give to students? Or what's your policy recommendation here? Sure. I don't think making the end-of-course end of test, uh, a, I don't think giving it a bigger weight in the grade uh, is the answer here. And the reason is that the, my view is that the grades and the test scores are truly complementary measures of student learning and, and student performance. And we should embrace those multiple measures, not try to combine them into one thing. Uh, because the grades are 
importantly measuring a lot of stuff that the test uh, fails to measure. So one thing about that is to just uh, keep the test. We know that there's um, a movement towards removing tests and coming back on testing. And I, of course, I, I do think there's a, a fine balance there of getting the, the level of testing right, so to speak. But eliminating testing altogether, uh, I think, is bad. And keeping a handful of high-quality content-based uh, tests that are aligned with the curriculum, such as these end-of-course tests for, for the handful of uh, high school subjects that most students take, I think this highlights the value of those tests. Um, Policy-wise, then, if we keep these tests, sharing the test results in a clear, uh, easy-to-interpret, transparent way with students, parents, and teachers, I think is really important. And so is sort of digging into why these discrepancies exist when they do. You know, it would be fairly straightforward for, you know, for the subset of students in a school whose end-of-course exams are out of whack with their grades, uh, it seems like it would be a really valuable thing to, for somebody to sit down and try to figure out why that, why that is and uh, sort of have a you know, frank and honest discussion with the students and with the teachers about, about what's going on. Well, I know we did something like that at Harvard. We had the president, uh, maybe not quite the same, but the president uh, put out a report which showed that we'd been getting great inflation steadily over the from one year to the next, and it was just relentlessly going up, and uh, mm -hmm. said we need to do something about this. And there was a lot of meetings and talking on the campus, and and then the next year, actually, grades went down. So this, this effort by the president to actually, you know, um, uh, face up to this reality did have an impact. But then it only had a short-term impact. And then pretty soon, mm -hmm. they, those same old thing uh, started over again. So I'm just sort of saying that, yes, a, it's, it's, you would have to do this very consistently over a sustained period of time if you were going to... Uh, try to do this through administrative action, probably. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's right, uh, and and I think it's I think it's worth doing. I think there's real value in in providing multiple accurate measures of achievement, and whether whether there's sort of um, clear reasons are identified or not, it doesn't change the bigger point of just giving equal weight. Of the grades and the test scores are, are close to equal weight, not in the computation of the grades, but equal weight in the assessments and implications of those measures for parents and kids. So in other so, words, you're just saying let's have yeah. transparency and let's use transparency and make sure that everybody knows what these end-of-course exams are telling us. Yeah, I think, I think that's sort of a simple first step. And the other policy thing I'll say quickly is on the other side, uh, on the employer and college admission side who are using grades, even if they're not using them as much as they were, they're still using them to some extent. And you could imagine uh, that maybe there's a state role to do a sort of GDP deflator type correction to grades so that 
it takes the onus off of the admissions officers or the employers to try to sort of eyeball the differences and figure out, you know, if a school's a high grading school or not, and essentially deflate the grades in the schools that, that have this inflation problem uh, to make students more comparable across schools. And this is important for equity, I think, because Right, we're seeing that the inflation is happening in relatively advantaged schools, and those are also the schools that are sending more kids to college. So, if you're a college, college admissions officer who doesn't see many kids uh, applying from a certain high school, uh, you really have no idea what the grading practices are in that school because you're just not familiar with the school. So, I think there's a, I think there's also a role there. Well, it, your uh, argument that. Uh our grading policies in our schools are inequitable is certainly a very compelling story and I uh, wish you all the best in the uh, wide circulation of your analysis because I think it's a very important finding uh, that you uh, have uh, presented here Seth so thank you very much uh, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Oh yeah thanks for having me it was fun. I have been speaking with Seth Gershenson, Professor of Public Policy at American University in Washington, D.C. Uh, I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.